history is not necessarily that which is told by the victors, but it's that which is familiar to the people in which it's told to. Episode number eight. Welcome back to the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, where we bring you weekly conversations about new topics and ideas that we are pondering on and trying to figure out what they mean in the context of our own lives. To start us off, we have John giving us a series of questions which we will use to guide our conversation today and understand where we can come to a few sets of conclusions and how they can apply to your life right now. All right, what's going on, knowledge-loving people? Yeah, so as usual, I'm just going to jump into a set of questions that are going to be somewhat fun to entertain as we go through this conversation. Today's general topic is about history and the way history is perceived through multi-decadal spans. So here are the questions. Is history told by the victors? Are victors the individuals that select which information gets communicated? Or are victors those who fail to recognize their ideological defeats? Are labels persistent, and how long do they take to change? How does familiarity bias our understanding of the past? And then we're going to talk about some aspects of familiarity there. So let's just jump into the first one, Joe. And so is history told by the victors? I think what's important is that we first start off with understanding how we communicate history in different ways, whether it be educational, person-to-person stories, interacting with strangers, and how we determine the definition of communicating history and stories, I think is firstly most important. And when we think of the first instances we have of learning about our past and our cultures and our, our growth to this point, these are usually educational. And when we're in an educational environment, we like to talk about the different major points in history, sometimes how we got there, not often why we got there because there's so much to cover that we kind of have to ski over all these different topics. But when we think about who wrote the history books and these lessons and lectures that we learn, it's most common that we hear the phrase, history is told by the victors. Because in that definition, the people who were successful in their endeavors of moving to a new community or taking over a new village and establishing a society there or winning a war and defeating that ideology of whatever was opposing one another. Usually those people that gain the the structure of a new community and environment are the ones who tell the story of why they were successful, why they were righteous in their endeavors, and then why things progress the way they did, and they want you to support that background. They, they want you to feel attached to it in the way you look back on the history that you were involved with or observing from the outside as the right thing that happened, or maybe not the right thing that happened, but why that was leading up to where we are now. And I think that's the, the major premise of wondering if history was truly written by the victors. Yeah, and on that note, The next question we can ask about that is, well, is that good, right? So there's all these different perspectives within an industry, within a society, and there is likely going to be some of these select individuals that have won, subjectively speaking, and some that have lost. And so within a society like that, how do you then optimize a storytelling? That's really what history is. It's just a vast story as we've perceived it in our current era. But how do you how do you somewhat optimize 
what stories are pervaded and how do you associate value with a perspective or a story, right? I mean, like, here's the thing, like each, each of the books we see online about some type of history will have some number of book sales associated with it, right? So if, if that's our value metric for ascribing the level of truth, you might say, of, of some type of historical story, right? What's another way we can look at the value of a specific story and how we can perhaps somewhat bypass the, the idea of victory? Because victory is just somewhat of an arbitrary concept. Victory for what purpose, right? Is it victory to sustain a society? Is it victory for the individuals so that they can live? What is it that we can actually ascribe value to these stories? I mean, we can't really put a currency to these items. And so there's kind of that debate within our own minds is, okay, I'm being told this story and a skeptic in me is saying, well, what are the other perspectives? What are the other ways we can tell that type of story? So I think the value that comes from when we share stories is a, a sustained credibility. And obviously that's how we interpret value and things that we hear from anyone like ourselves telling people our own ideas is what is your perceived credibility? And I think that comes in two ways. Firstly, is your level of familiarity with the successes or quality of ideas that you perceive someone to tell you. And then secondly, the universal value, which is money, financial equilibrator of your productivity and your capability to put new stories or values or products into the world. And that's where I think value is prescribed. But when we think about the value of historical ideas and how we want to classify the quality of those, it usually has to come from either a familiarity with the individual, like when your grandparent tells you a story of what being raised in that time was like, that will be so much more in depth and memorable and valuable to someone than reading it out of a, a paragraph in a history book, because it is a firsthand account. And with that story, not only are you getting emotions and feelings and specific individual memories that you know happened and existed, but also the, the level of understanding that we have of why these things happened, where the context of the situation came to, to lead up to that point. And then from there, we, we recognize that, that that person, your grandparent, your, your great uncle, whoever it may be, doesn't really gain anything from telling you a different version or a select version of that story. And I think that's where the line kind of blurs when we look at history told from the victors, from a larger institution versus from individuals who experienced it. And as we go through this series of almost generational telephone, we continue to iterate on the details of a story from long, long, long ago. And as we go through different biases and lenses of our own perceptions, as we look at history and continue to tell these stories, we are somewhat shifting the the specificity and quality of the attributes of those situations that happened, where if the event itself was highly emotional, and as we continue to tell these stories, you may lose some of that quality, and it may focus instead on a different aspect that was actually not the prevalent piece of that piece of history. And I think that's how we have to look at our, our view of who is telling us these stories and how much value do we put toward history? Because we, we can't give it pure, objective, factual correctness in entirety. It has to have some level of subjectivity in its interpretation. Yeah. And, and so this ties into, I think, the idea of empathy and its role in 
more or less manipulating the fabric from which history is then told, right? In the, in the case that you use your, your grandpa, your uncle, um, you're using that anecdotal experience because of your own familiarity with that human being to then justify the validity of the substrate of idea and context that comes with the story itself. But here's where it gets even a little bit more tricky because it depends also on the age of the person, right? We're looking at generational spans of history and generations usually appropriate colloquial terms of words and jargons. And that then becomes a metric from which they will denote their own interpretations about the world, right? There, there's lots of different words we use in the English dictionary and all over the, all over the place. And the thing is, Words can then adopt new meaning as time goes on. Zoo slang is created. And so from that, you can say, okay, we go all the way back from, you know, the very birth of America. And we look at the founding documentation that binds the moral ideals of the society that we call America today. Do those phrases they use then actually mean the exact same thing, right? Are these labels still persistent? And how long do they take to change? Is it a generational change or maybe it's a, a, a adoption trend where, you know, if, if some type of idea or some type of technology comes, comes out, then displaces jargon. So a lot of the times, you know, like we have all these new ways of interacting like likes, right? That's not a concept that really was anywhere near where we are today with all the different cell phones and different media platforms, we have the concept of likes. And in that we build validation and, and likes then become a, a substrate of victory in, in that sense. And so likes then can construe meaning, but what does it really mean? Likes is just a subjective term. It doesn't actually denote any validity to a story, for example. But because we hold the idea of likes in such high regards today, because we get the dopaminergic validation from it on our social media platforms, we also ascribe meaning in that way. And then, and then there's the actual direct meaning transfer, right? Like you'll have words like freedom change and adopt new things as different cultural and ethnic groups enter into a society. And, and they'll basically have their own idea of what, what freedom devolves into or evolves into, uh, as it sees fit with them. Right. And so like, how do we somewhat balance? And, and this goes back whenever you're reading any, any ancient text, there's all these different words and phrases used and they have very specific meaning in the context they're told in. What's what's the balance? As if I'm looking back at, you know, or I have my grandpa in front of me, he's telling me the stories back when he was in Vietnam, right? How do I actually relate the experience from the words he's saying into something that is more objective, whatever that means? I don't think you really can in, in a full context because an interesting point that you brought up was looking at how do you take people who are assimilating into a new culture, whether it be through, you know, sustained movement flows of people as we develop over, you know, different communities and civilizations and countries and, and people move all the time, every day in all directions. And when you have new families coming to a brand new culture, they have to accept or at least look at face value what the stories being told to them are because they have no preconceived notions of what they should be looking for. So how do you know and give value and validity to the new pieces of information that you're given and what to expect for their, their own incentives, for the people telling you the stories? Are there incentives? Are there biases? And I think that's 
really interesting and important as we look back on the thousands and thousands of years of development. If you look back at the the Central American like Mayans and the Aztecs and as the Spanish conquistadors came into these new civilizations and what happened as these progressions of assimilations happened. And then who told these stories afterward? There are civilizations that do not exist anymore. And we have remnants of the stories of what happened and why. And then we have ongoing stories of who succeeded those groups. And I think that still exists today, truly to this day. There are still instances where new people have to evaluate what information they're given without knowing they have to evaluate different aspects of these stories, which make it ever more challenging and important in understanding the way we tell stories and create history. And that's really important to delineate because as we go forward and share stories in an age where it's ever changing to communicate faster, broader, you have to figure out new ways to delineate between biased stories or selective pieces of history and understand that a lot of what you may understand or read or learn is someone's specifically produced idea of what they want as either a comprehensive or non-comprehensive evaluation of an event. Mm. Yeah, I have, I have a few thoughts on that. And it's, it's to your point, I mean, you, you really can't find some objective reality from some anecdotal experience. There's no way. You're, you don't have the same sensory pathways as that individual. And the words that they use to ascribe meaning to those sensory pathways in a form of communication between two individuals is going to vastly be different. And not only to mention their uh, memory systems are somewhat blurry when they're recalling it, and that has its own error metric, you might say. But here's here's something where we can jump on something. I think I think the idea of of jargon morphing is really where I want to capitalize on. But here's the question that I'm trying to think through right now. Does does jargon have a specific entropy? Do do different words have different levels of entropy in how they devolve meaning? Or some, sometimes they can escalate and sometimes you can actually reverse some level of entropy associated with a class of words. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Because when we look at like Shakespeare and you read something like that, we don't know or think that that's how everyone talked to each other at the time. It is in itself poetry, right? But reading that is a window into hundreds of years ago about how people used to think or communicate. And we know that the linguistic structures and word choices absolutely change and evolve. And I think those changes and evolutions come via pressures of new assimilations of cultures and movement of people going from, I don't know, historical areas to new environments. And as they transition into these new environments and you're combining and meshing different cultures and different pieces of information along with new experienced stories, the words used adopt new definitions and we are using them to this day in contexts that were not applicable a decade ago, a hundred years ago. And I think even now in a very micro context in the span of a couple of years, especially as new generations like the Gen Z generations coming out, they have vocabulary that they use to communicate to each other that to us, not far removed from Gen Z, 
sounds bizarre, confusing, things that we don't normally use to talk to each other. And I'm sure we did the exact same thing to the greater millennial generation right before us. And then span it over decades when you look at people born before 1940. So our grandparents, they had ways of talking and speaking to each other that not only incorporated into their beliefs and the way they communicate stories, but also we could use the exact same word in a different context or definition, which is bizarre when you think about that's literally the way that we propagate history. And in just a couple of generations, we can use the same word differently. And that's how we have to rely on our prolonged storytelling of history. It's no, it's no surprise that, that it evolves and changes in the way that we perceive the events that happened hundreds of years ago or thousands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think if we look at the Bible, this is a classic example in which jargon has developed this form of entropy and has led so many people afar from actually understanding what the hell these people were talking about when they wrote the Bible. And from this, I think you can maybe derive a statement like a way to communicate in words will always build a moral or ethical ruins behind it and that it will always collapse in the nature of time so that you can pick apart different ideas from these, these large moral faculties like the Bible and so forth, and then you can find some real value in there. But never will you ever find the true, the true structure of thought that was initially created. And so when we're picking apart these types of ideological beasts like the Bible and trying to understand what the hell these people experienced that led them to build these forms of communication platforms. And, and maybe, maybe the real limit here in telling history is that we're using text or using words. We're using a vocal transmission medium, which comes with its own subjective inferences, you know, depending on what other experiences that individuals had and how other people in their environment have used these words and, and so forth. So I'm curious in your experience with learning and studying Chinese and Mandarin for so long, do you think that this factor kind of hinges or depends on the medium in which you communicate stories? Because in English or at least Latin languages, we have letters and characters. Mm -hmm. And what you just said makes me think of the quality of stories from hieroglyphics in right. Egyptian. That's a very, very, very good point because when it comes to a pictographic language, there's, there's, there is an abstraction, like when we look at English, there's an abstraction built into the letter itself. The letter A doesn't actually have any meaning other than that, which is then placed adjacent to other letters and then it becomes a word. But when it comes to Chinese, every letter has another abstracted meaning derived in, into it. It's embedded into it. So when I look at a character like Tian, it's, it means field. Right. And I see it. It's a little plot. It's a square. You can imagine like a little two by two square matrix. Right. And it has a little bounding square around it. And so when I look at it, I, I see a field and I already have somewhat a, a uh, reduced bias associated with the meaning of the word. And, and to some level, this could be a really great tactic or a very bad tactic for changing or adapting a society. So with the evolution of different colloquial appropriations of words, you can have a society evolve at a much quicker rate, perhaps, than something that has very static words and meanings. It has that flexibility in English to then adopt new meanings as is fit with technology. But because all the different hieroglyphical understandings are, 
are, are built 2,000 years ago, a lot of the ways that those were depicted used old technology. Like another character, it's a radical, it's called Dao. It's a, it's a knife and, and it's used all across agricultural types of meanings and characters. But we don't use knives anymore in like agriculture, right? We use all these different types of technology. And so, you know, those meanings have degraded and perhaps held them back from unlocking newer meanings in the technological field. And maybe you could also make the argument that this is why people are gravitating towards English for science, why everyone in academia necessarily nowadays has some grappling with English. It's because I think of the rate in which these terminologies can be adopted, adapted, and changed by industry even. Different words in an academic sector will have a very specific meaning than, you know, if you go from like biology to you know, histor history or you go to economics, you'll, you'll have like the word like increase or like uh, you'll have like progression and it'll, they'll mean different things. Even though like the basic understanding is the same, it's just like, well, it's the context that drives it. So it would be like if we had some sort of subjective metric to give the necessity to understand or interpret a word and how that word is written. And it makes me think of like the hieroglyphs and images that we found for Egyptian cultures and um, like Aztec and Mayan. When we, when we look at these interpretations of their symbolic communication, there's really not a lot of space for us to think about was there sarcasm involved in this statement? Was there a hidden meaning? There could be a hidden meaning, but less so than if someone were to put a, a book into a time capsule and open it 2000 years from now. And the people who found it, whatever language they're speaking, had to decipher our levels of sarcasm and poetry and intonations in the way we describe stories. And you often hear people talk about Spanish and French and Italian being the romance languages. And they're very musical and they have a melody to the way that you speak through sentences and things and ideas. And they sound very beautiful to the ear where English and other, you know, Germanic languages have a little bit more harsher emphasis on syllables and consonants. And I think when we look at the spread of ideas, it's super interesting to go off the point you were just saying how it really doesn't matter how you have to interpret the subjective bias of that word. Like, you know what it means. There's already an association with the image, with the character. And it makes me think about how strangers could communicate to each other. And like, what, what is the definition of a true stranger? If I were to show you a word in English or a phrase, and I gave you no other context to talk about it versus a word or a phrase in Chinese or Mandarin, would there be the same level of unknown approach to that sentence or given the characteristics of that language, could you look at it and say, oh, I know based off of this language as a whole, there are hidden or at least base level associations with this phrase. And, and we derive meaning also based on that familiarity complex too. And, and that, you know, the, back to the example of your uncle telling you a story right? You, you ascribe meaning to it because of your own comfort and familiarity with speaking to that individual, regardless of the words that they mean. You're going to, you're going to create your own meaning based on how you understand the words that he's, that he's choosing to, 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 to use. And, and so 
when you say, what is a true stranger? It's impossible, I think, to really have a true stranger because there's always going to be subtle patterns that are familiar. We're all humans. We all are driven by some some way a, a similar basic necessities of we want shelter. We have this kind of fragile system of bones and blood and where these fleshy sacks, if you want to call it, and you want to get real descriptive, right? It's, it's, it's interesting. And, and this is something that binds us, our own physical limitations as humans builds our own familiarity with one another and allows us to at least operate and cooperate with each other to some extent. But the problem, right, lies within how these these familiarity complexes are then misconstrued, perhaps. Like we were talking about this before, before we jumped on this podcast, but you know, some people will have very similar facial structures. Some people will have these ethnical, uh, uh, ethnical compositions. Sometimes they're like mutts. I mean, I'm a mutt, right? And I have a little bit of German in me, a little bit of that and this and this, right? And, and, and so when I see these types of similar structures, maybe it's because I look at myself in the mirror, right? And I want to see familiarity in a way that it relates to myself because there's always this comparison metric. And so maybe I'm, I'm justifying my own familiarity of facial expression and then putting my validity or my understanding of validity in other individuals that share similar aspects that I do, right? And so this is where it gets really tricky is because then you can, you can make a lot of different arguments that, okay, well, familiarity bias will also construe the way history is told. If you're constantly telling uh, different individuals, people who are completely different than you, a, a different way of understanding the story, there's two there's two aspects that are potentially really bad though. Because look, the person who you're, you're telling is actually a true stranger, even though it's kind of mythical. But like the, the the closest to a stranger you can get, they're gonna have their own colloquial accepted jargon terms, and not only are they gonna misinterpret what you're saying, but they're not even gonna have the familiar lens, and they're gonna be more willing to ascribe bad meaning potentially with it because they're already skeptical of the uncertainty that you don't have the familiarity with. Right. And so this is where it gets into kind of a tricky, tricky understanding. It's like, I got to figure out how to communicate with people that can incrementally decrease the familiarity of an idea so it can then be dispersed to the largest amount of people. It has to go through incremental steps as in, I tell a person who's, you know, somewhat similar to me, Right, and and then 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 you go down the hierarchy. They 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 tell another person who's somewhat similar to to them, and you keep going. And at the very end of the day, you're going to get some person that is completely different from the original person that told it. But maybe you're losing less meaning because you're trying to resolve the familiarity gap um, with doing this chain of events, this incremental uh, communication tactic. And so maybe this is this is a, a value added as well. And um, I'd be curious to hear what you think about that. So I think what, what it makes me think about is if you were to tell a story to someone who is as similar to you as you could find in whatever metric or set of qualities you want, and then say that person was just 10% different than you, and then you have a hundred people or even 10 people, 10 people that tell the same, the story that you started with to, you know, 10 people. And each time you have an incremental change of 10% from the original, eventually the 10th person will be hundred percent different from you. Not, not, not literally, but they may have some overlapping similarities that the differences may not offset. But in that context of the incremental changes in familiarity, it's an interesting thought concept to try and, to try and work with, to think about how not only our 
essential game of telephone in our communication changes as we pass an idea through our own our, len our own lenses of perception, the doors of perception and how you look at things and then tell that to someone else. And then this pattern continues and iterates. You may have a completely different story by the end of it. And it could change with the types of characters that you use to send that story or the words that you use to describe that story. And then the level of familiarity you have with strangers. And it makes me think of like, pseudo strangers you essentially have some familiarity to so many people that you kind of have to define what is a true stranger because if you're meeting someone on the street for the first time you know you've never met them before you may not have any sort of preconceived notion of what you're going to talk about who they are what their background is but in other contexts say you have a favorite streamer you have a streamer you watch on twitch or youtube and they have so much of their life put on the internet available to tens of thousands of people that if you meet them in the street, you know so much about their life and their thoughts and their interactions and their ways of expressing ideas and they know absolutely nothing about you. Is that a true communication or, or interaction between strangers or is it a pseudo stranger because they know nothing about you, but you know so much about them? This is interesting because then it's the validity of what I say to them They'll be interpreted, they'll be very skeptical, right? However, whatever they say to me, I will take because I know about them. And so this is the whole, the whole non-back and forth argument, I think. It's like, it's not a back and forth. It's, it's not that everyone has equal weights into how valid or how true, you know, to use that term, a, a piece of information is. It is very dependent on the bond between two individuals choosing to communicate. And I think that's the whole the whole realm of miscommunication there. It's, do you buy as much as I'm telling you as you buy that that what you're telling me? Probably right? not. Right? Yeah, probably and, not. And so it's like, well, are we even agreed upon the mutual trade of ideas? As in, is the trading of ideas actually a standard? Is there any standard to how we are treating ideas here? And, and I think this is probably a problem because we don't have currency ascribed to our thoughts, right? It's impossible really to, to really value thoughts because you never know how a thought manifests into action and action into some tangible good or product or resource or service. And so there's always this, this dispute as to what is the value of what I'm saying relative to the value the other person's telling me. And when we're looking at history, this is where history, I think, becomes manipulated into this, this complex fabric of stories of some validity and some absolute not validity. And then, you know, actual truth, like tangible events that actually took place. And it's like this, this constant balance depending on, I would say, a one-sided exchange, right? And, and so, when when communication is being attempted, I think there has to be at least a development of a two-sided, you know, debacle, at least some pursuit towards that, to where both individuals are, are somewhat understanding the perspective so that the jargonization, the morphing of the jargonization that they're using isn't actually barriering them to understanding uh, actual interpretation of an in individual. Instead, it's, you know, more like a, a very, you know, uh, inference that is just 10% true, right? I think that's so cool when you said the the association of value of ideas and that really inspires me to think about like when you meet new people and going through the process of of the jargon or the similar words i think 
when we when we meet true strangers, so I think the delineation between pseudo strangers and true strangers is the level of randomness in what you can expect or not expect at all there to be in this this communication that's about to proceed. And I think most often when you when you meet someone who's truly a stranger and new, your your pre set levels of conversation and questions are trying to find where you have similarities. Most often when you meet someone new in say it's a house party or a dinner or a context of a conference or something, it's actually a conference doesn't count. I, I will take conference out of that, but say like a party or on the street, it's what do you do? Where did you go to school? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? It, you're, you're narrowing down as much as you can to the levels of similarities that you have or having a similarity on the fact that you have differences from the aggregate of what you're surrounded with. So say you live in New York and you meet 50 people who all went to NYU and then you meet someone who did not go to NYU and say neither did you. You are now similar to that person in your own differences from everybody else. And I think when you approach conversations and the definition of meeting strangers, say you're going into an interview those aren't actually true strangers. Those are pseudo strangers because you have a preconceived notion or an idea of what it is you're going to talk about, why you're going there in the first place, a general idea of what you will be discussing with your background and your goals and theirs and their goals. You're not true strangers. You already know something about what you are walking into. But if you meet a stranger on the street, someone you've never met before, you have no background, nothing but just a random hello, that is true randomness. Mm -hmm. But then once you meet, you will go through a set of iterative questions, narrowing down how you can bucket them, or not even bucket them, but categorize them in your, your life sphere, location, occupation, education. And then from there, you continue to dive deeper and deeper. And it depends on the level of surface level familiar similarities you have that I think inspires people to want to go to those deeper levels. If you don't have surface level, maybe not surface level, that's kind of superficial, but base level similarities, like same school, whatever, all those things, will you still want to progress deeper into seeing if you have overlapping passions or overlapping ideas or an overlapping history, and then trying to see if, if there's a new novel way to describe ideas, you know, you know what I'm kind of getting at? Yeah. It's tough. I'm, I'm, I'm relating, I'm trying to relate your idea back into history and I'm seeking somewhat of a different perception of history. So yeah, history may be told by some victors or at least the people that could uh, choose what information is, is collected. But there's also this familiarity aspect because history might be told, but it's really about how history is interpreted and then inherited, right? With these overlapping affects and so forth. And so maybe it's like, History is not necessarily that which is told by the victors, but it's that which is familiar to the people in which it's told to, right? I can only understand aspects of history that I've had at least a, a similar type of experience I can relate it to in the first place. So like none of us have had like, you know, any experience in wars, at least in the Gen Z era. None of us really have. I mean, we're both Gen Zers. And so for us, when we're, when we're hearing stories about the tales and stories in war, what are we imagining, right? What, what are we actually thinking about? And how are we construing history? Because we're going to be the ones telling about this historical pattern as, as we, we grow older and new, new generations are recruited into life. And 
I want to understand at least how this familiarity concept in education, you know, whether or not you're familiar with these other types of these ideas that are told in school, how, how familiar are you with them? And I think the people that are somewhat sheltered from the world. And I think a lot of parents shelter, shelter children in this way nowadays, especially with all the different influence of technology. And they have, they want to just be like, okay, I don't know what's going on with my kids. So let's lock them down. But the problem with doing that is that these are the individuals that are going to construe history in a specific way. And they need a relative baseline to then even relate the experience of history to tell it so that we can continue to learn from it. And this is the whole the whole problem is that there isn't necessarily an experiential learning aspect that comes with history. It's told in text forms with meaning that is ascribed through multiple generations. And each generation is going to come to their own interpretation of it because the words they use are different because there's no consistency within the English language for which we use jargons and terms and so forth. So what would you say? What would you say is another way to think about history as a, as a form of interpretation? I think I would have. I would have loved to have seen our modern day culture. And I think something interesting that you said is recruit people, recruit new generations into life. I think that's such an interesting way of talking about bringing more people into the world, recruiting them into life. I really would have loved to have seen our generation or at least our culture widely accept the process of oral oral history recollections. And I, I used to love studying that when we would hear about cultures that would maintain their lineage through pure orators, oral history. You were tasked with knowing the stories of all of your ancestors. You knew a dozen names of your ancestors and what they did and what their greatest accomplishments were. And when they led the community and when they you know developed something I thought that was so interesting that you knew you were tasked with knowing as a, as the newest member of your family's tree, knowing the spoken history of everyone before you. That's, that's an incredible concept to try and imagine. Imagine 12 generations before you, you knew their story and what they all did to get to you. That sense of responsibility and ownership and attachment to your history and the, the broader history within your community, I think is the coolest thing that we could have had. And when we talk about how we spread this now, it's it's less so in, in a, a structured format where there's so many of us now that, that I think there's less value in knowing your 12 generations before. And maybe it's an, an aspect of our, our country being so new, like, there, I can I can trace back three generations for when my ancestors were in the United States, or even less on on the other half of my family side, and there wasn't an emphasis on on explaining what we did and why this is important. This this family unit and structure and explaining why you matter, mm-hmm. why you and your family and everything that they did for hundreds of years are important. Now it's it's more so. I don't know, expression and understanding how like you in this exact present moment are the the most important thing. But I think it's, there's still some, there's still a lot of value and validity to understanding like your ancestors history. I think that's actually more valuable than understanding so the broader out. context. Yeah, I, I agree to some extent. It comes with a caveat because me understanding the experiential sector through which my ancestors live life is valuable in developing a sense of responsibility for living. 
I think that is the fundamental piece. Other than that, the context, the environment, the technology that we live in, it's completely different. It has no bearing to what these people actually experienced and then could con construct these types of thoughts and understandings of how the world is and how it was. And, you know, this is why maybe, maybe you could make the statement as well that uh, instead of, instead of trying to denote how healthy a society is by, you know, them understanding what shoulders of giants they're standing on. But it's another question is to ask them, well, what do you imagine the future of the society is going to look like? And then taking the amalgam of all those future perceptions. Now, because I mean, look, it, it's, it's funny because just as imaginative as the future scenario is, is equally as imaginative as we imagine the past. So why is it that we place so much thought in the history and trying to get it just right when we know memory bias, jargon bias, familiarity bias are all things that are going to be destroying and enterprising the, the understanding of history as a term. So what, what could be a more fun and engaging exercise, I think, for individuals to understand human, human behavior at all levels is just to hypothesize. What does the future look like? Because in that, you're exercising an imagination component that is trying to establish some continuity of trends, because that's what history is. History is a set of trends that we follow along. And instead of trying to make sure that we're overfitting all the right aspects and getting the exact pattern right, it'd be much more valuable, I think, to try to find a generic curve that describes the trend of humanity. And I think that's what looking into the future really does here. Um, not only is it an interesting exercise, but it also helps innovate too, because we we see gaps in society and everyone has their own understanding of gaps in society. And and so it's it's something that I think we focus way too much on history and 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 trying to understand how people were feeling. We're not going to understand that. We're not going to understand how people felt oppressed. We're not going to uh, understand how ideas were suppressed. We, we can't relate to it. We don't have that actual substrate of experience to relate it to. But what we can do is we can relate our current experiences in present modern day America or wherever we are and, and then talk about the future. This is something that we can all jump aboard because it hasn't happened yet. And, and this is something I wanted to somewhat end the episode here with, um, just as a form of wrap up. And when we're looking back at history, it's, it's like, okay, well, look at also the future because you can, you, can, you can describe the history by looking at the future, relating it to the present, seeing that trend, and then looking back from the present to the history and then seeing that trend. Those are the components that allow you to understand human behavior at a much larger scale, way more important, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, that's a fantastic kind of set of quotes that we can, we can end this episode on. It's, it's looking backward to truly understand how we're moving forward. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. This has been episode eight of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. We'll see you next week. If you made it this far into the podcast and want to hear more content, please consider following us on Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube and sharing today's podcast link with your close friends. We hope this podcast incites you to start some interesting conversations and expand on some of the ideas we've discussed. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, a podcast aimed at unveiling the certainly uncertain relationships between some of the most complex systems known to man.